The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, October 18th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Gordon Sundland. I like saying that name. Doesn't sound American. Gordon Sundland testified before Congress today. He was uh, America is America's ambassador to the EU. And he provided, before his testimony, a transcript of what he was going to say. So we know what he said. He blamed Rudy, but noted that he did not initially realize, or I'm going to say likely couldn't grasp exactly what Rudy was up to. Quote, I did not understand until much later that Mr. Giuliani's agenda might have also included an effort to prompt the Ukrainians to investigate Vice President Biden or his son, or to involve the Ukrainians directly or indirectly in the president's 2020 re-election campaign. He also cited, for his mentorship, Mike Pompeo, quote, My work was consistent with longstanding U.S. foreign policy objectives. Indeed, very recently, Secretary Pompeo sent me a congratulatory note that was doing great work. These are his words. And he encouraged me to keep banging away. Lovely. I think Ambassador Sundland was worried that the banging might soon become more like a clanging, as in cell doors. So he decided to come clean, well, as clean as he could, given that by his own word, he was tasked by the job of advancing administration objectives. And those objectives, we know now, include pressuring the Ukrainians to investigate American politicians. I do, however, want to highlight one aspect of Sunland's testimony and to convey an interesting fact about Ukraine that you might not know. So Sunland said, quote, from my very first days as ambassador, Ukraine has been part of my broader work pursuing U.S. national interests. Ukraine's political and economic development are critical to the longstanding stability of Europe. As the ambassador to the EU, I've always viewed my Ukraine work as central to advancing U.S. EU foreign policy. Here's the interesting thing. You ready? It kind of worked. Or maybe Sunland had nothing to do with it. But here's what's been going on with Ukraine. They've been doing quite well. I mean, compared to where they were, even a couple of years ago, Ukraine was the European basket case, understandably so. Lost Crimea in a war to Russia. Uh, have a war tearing it apart. You're not going to do well in those circumstances, especially when you're starting from a position of not having much to begin with. But they really are doing much better under Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky came in. He was this actor. No one was sure what to make of him. But he did well in the election. Then his party did well in congressional elections. And he does seem committed to economic reforms. And he is cooperating with the IMF. The IMF, by the way, one of the entities that urged the firing of the former corrupt prosecutor who wouldn't go after Hunter. Biden. And that was good. That was all good. That's all good policy. Such good policy that the the bond market is really high on Ukrainian bonds. The Financial Times wrote, since the president Zelensky's arrival, overseas buyers have begun to return, encouraged that Mr. Zelensky's policies could accelerate a tepid 
economic recovery. In fact, I was inspired to look this up because I was glancing at charts of the best performing sovereign bonds this year. It's a hobby. And there at the top, atop of Kenya and Ecuador, was Ukraine. They're number one. Ukraine rules the world in bond returns this year. Congratulations, Ukraine. Sorry about your decimated, war-torn, economically backward toddler of a nation. Especially sorry that it ever had to be sullied and dragged down in that you had to deal with the president of the United States of America. Yeah, are bad. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig. Your letters will be answered. Your emails will be responded to. Your tweets will be unmuted. And I should note that I will be a guest at Politicon, the political conference Politicon in Nashville the weekend after this upcoming weekend. That's October 25th and 26th. If you're in the area or want to make a special trip, I'll be doing two things. I'll be doing a gist live show on Saturday about sexy, sexy centrism. And then on Sunday, uh, from three to four, I will be leading a panel called What Now, Democrats? Whoa, whoa, whoa. The panelists will be Joe Lockhart, James Carville, Kyle Kulinski, Jess McIntosh, and Zerlina Maxwell. Go to politicon.com for more information. But first, Megan Daum stops by our show. She is one of my favorite writers. For years, she's, she has been, and like me, She's found herself lately wondering what our place is in this new media ecosphere, where it sometimes seems that accuracy and journalism is asked to take a back seat to championing the aggrieved and activism. I mean, that's just one of the problems I have. Megan lays out the problem with everything in her new book, The Problem with Everything. Megan Dom has a problem. And before I tell you what her problem is, I will read a couple of choice lines and convey a couple of choice ideas from her new book. One, talk about coming back to New York. She writes, now that I had returned, it was as if my 20s were being handed back to me in used condition. Chef's kiss to that one. And how about this? But the thing about growing older is that as time goes on, you run into more and more people. It is so true. And now I will reveal what Megan Daum has a problem with. It is called The Problem With Everything. That is the name of her new book, The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Megan, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. So by everything, there's a a, a helpful graphic on the cover. And some of the things that constitute everything are privilege, woke, patriarchy, victims, gaslighting, identity politics. Yes, 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 yes. But you're going to call the book You Are Not a Badass. For a while, yeah. I had many working titles. (laughs) That was a good working title. That was one of the first ones, yes. It seems like society has taken care of that because now I think I, maybe I'm a little ahead of this curve, seems like badass is... Uh, the self-impeachment of titles. Anyone who yeah. calls themselves a badass. Like, once the title get, gets applied to Nancy Pelosi a lot, it stops being really badass. Yeah, it's one of those things if you, you know, when I worked in a, the fashion magazines, they always said, you know, if if you use the word chic, everyone knows that you're not. So yes. if, you, if you call yourself a badass, it's pretty good, uh, pretty good proof that you are, in fact, not a badass. What was another working title or a working concept? Woke me when it's over. Uh-huh. <laughs> a little too cutesy. A lot of people really thought that that should be the title. Like uh-huh. serious people thought that that should be the title. And I actually 
it was always my joke title, my yeah. little private title with myself. So do you think, does that imply that you think this era of uh, excessive enforcement of norms of behavior that are, you know, fairly far to the left, do you think that it will pass? It certainly can't sustain its current level. Of intensity. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to totally pass. You know, one of the things with this book is I, you know, there's the question of why I wrote it, and then there's the question of why I wrote it the way I did. So well, I, if you want to answer those questions, I, you don't need me. I yes, I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask <laughs> you. you some, I'm gonna ask you some questions after this. You go. Uh, you go so, rhetorical. But no, it's like I, you know, like you, I am growing weary of words like triggered and snowflake and virtue signaling and all of that. But I didn't want to just uh, write a book just hammering away at those things. I was really more interested in how we got to this place and what is it about me that um, is so frustrated by everything? Like, what are my weaknesses in, yes. in the midst of all of this? I've asked myself those questions, not about you, but about me, but also about you. And I think I come back to this one quality about me and you and many in our situation, which is that we're older than 42. It's about Are you, you, you're, you're telling everyone how old I am. I am older than 42. Yes, that's safe. But that, I mean, that's 42 really, is the cutoff. Somewhere around there. I've met 40 year olds who are pretty woke and I've met very few 45 year olds who I can't like look in the eye and have them go. Yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. But there are also like those 55 year olds that are faux woke. Yes. They're folk. Yeah. Yes. They're the old folksies. Yeah. Yes. The old yes. wokesies. So then the question is, is it that this younger and not that much younger generation uh, saw the light, right? Or is it that they were um, marinated in a different media culture? Or is it just, let's not overthink this, social media? And social media has this crazy amplifying effect that we as non-social media natives never experienced. Yeah, it has an amplifying effect and a distorting effect. And I think, you know, before we go too far into this, it's important to say these really aren't most people. Like oh, yeah. when we're talking about the hyper woke, the people on social media who are bullying other people, the sort of, you know, purity police, we're talking about a very small fraction of people in the world, in the country, right? So even on college campuses, the people that you see protesting, the activists, they are but a small but very loud segment of the student population. So I I do think, however, that a lot of this has arisen because there is a really pronounced generational divide between Gen Xers and millennials. It's almost like, I mean, I feel like I, I'm 49. So as much as I would like to be 42, I am 49. And in a lot of ways, I, my sensibility is more aligned with somebody who's like, you know, a baby boomer, somebody who's 59 more than somebody who's 40, for instance, or even somebody who's 65. So I do think that there is, our generation is in this sort of, you know, strange predicament of because we are not digital natives, because we were actually adults in the pre-social media world, mm -hmm. it's almost like we've grown old before our time. We're obsolete in a lot of ways before we're even 50. Okay, so I want to take the book as what your intention was, which was to examine the way that you yourself interact with this cultural and societal trend. Did you, by the very act of you interrogating it, did you come to conclusions that you didn't realize? And have you been able to like put these in place and calm yourself a little more? 
I'm so much calmer now yeah. that I'm not writing we the book We don't want anymore. the calm dumb. We want <laughs> so it, much jittery dumb. It, you know, it, to, write a, to try to write a book about something that's going on, like it was really like whack-a-mole. I mean, right. you just, I would write pages and pages about something and then it would become irrelevant. Uh, you know, there are assumptions that I had going in and a lot of them were sort of generationally based that I have fine-tuned a mm-hmm. bit. So, you know, one of the... Uh, one of my my pet theories that I talk about in the book is this idea of toughness versus fairness. And um, I think the Generation X, we kind of grew up almost fetishizing toughness. It yeah. was all about being, you know, aloof and, and ironic. And, you know, we were the ones, our, our, our mothers went to work and we were home by ourselves right. and we got beat up on the playground and right. it built character. Putting up shields and barriers. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then millennials may have a thing where they're fetishizing fairness, right? Like, you know, it's about inclusivity. It's about, you know, well, it doesn't, you know, equality of of opportunity needs to correlate with equality of outcome, you know, all this kind of thing. And and I used to think that our way was just better. I used to think that the Gen X way, we, we were just we were just superior in this yeah. regard. And, you know, the more I sort of sort through this, I think, well... I think that we could benefit from giving them a little bit of our toughness and they could give us a little bit of of their fairness. And then the other thing is, I really think that they grew up with certain social conditions and and digital influences that we just didn't have to contend with. We Mm -hmm. did not have ubiquitous online pornography. We did not have dating apps. Okay, we we had ways we, we learned how to negotiate complicated situations in person in a way that is is less available to people now and so especially in terms of like issues around consent sexual consent that kind of thing i have sort of broadened my my thinking about that because i think that a lot of these younger generations are dealing with highly sexualized input that is affecting their behavior and is making things probably in some cases a lot yuckier, yeah. for lack of a better word, than what we had to contend with. One thing that I find useful is there is the assumption that the younger generation always agitates for more change and more you know, fairness, and the older generation always chafes, and the younger generation is invariably proved right. I find it interesting to find exceptions to that throughout history. Have you found any? Have you thought of this? Oh, that they're actually not. That there are they're plenty not right? of examples where the uh, you know radical fringe agitators either won and were proved wrong, or lost and thank God. And mm-hmm. one example is before the United States was involved in World War II, it was very popular on college campuses to avoid joining the war, and that is an example where the student activists were staunchly anti-war most of them they were wrong it was right for the united states to join world war ii and if we didn't we could all be speaking german today but there are other examples like that too and i just think that it's interesting to say you know the assumption is either look we're going to be proved right or we'll all turn 40 and then say haha our radical youth we all go through that phase and i don't know if that's true either yeah i mean i guess we'll have to see you know so much of the the stuff around like the gender wage gap, for instance, and, uh-huh. and men, you know, men's and women's roles. You know, it was funny. I was I, I talk a lot in the book about growing up in the '70s, and it was this sort of androgynous period to be a kid. It was all about 
free to be you and me. Remember yes. that? And, yes. and, you know, that was this um, record that Marlo Thomas put out and it had Alan Alda and Rosie Greer and all, all these celebrities singing about, you know, how boys and girls are the same and it's all right for boys to cry and your daughter can be a plumber. And, you know, there was this whole thing. In, a doll, know, there, a doll. William's William doll. A doll. That's right. And, and uh, you know, there was this parenting philosophy that you could basically uh, take gender stereotypes out of out of children, you know, we, we think that this is what's going on now with with you know the questions around non-binary genders and all that. But this goes way back, and you know that experiment basically failed. Yeah, you know it. it you know you could you could take you know not expose your boy to any gun whatsoever, and he's still making a gun shape with his with his fingers. And you know we don't really have time to go down the rabbit hole of of brain sex differences and, and evolutionary biology. But, you know, I, I just think it's curious that, like, the gender conversation is not brand new. And and in fact, you know, the, the extreme binary, you know, one of my pet theories, and I kind of just toss this off as a joke, but I think there actually might be something here. You know, w- when, when it became possible to tell the sex of a baby in utero... Mm-hmm. I think that might have been the moment when when gender stereotypes became so much more pronounced than they had been in the 70s. I mean, in the 70s, we did not have like the pink toy aisle and the blue toy aisle. Everything was very sort of just, you know, a- androgynous. Yeah. There was like, you know, everyone would just watch the bad news bears. Yeah. And to be- well, you make you make a great point that the young girl feminist icons of the 70s were Jodie Foster and Christy McNichol. Christy McNichol. Who both grew both, up to be both lesbians. Both grew up to be lesbians and like worshipped. I mean, every girl wanted to be like them right being a tomboy was cool that was that was what you wanted to be and so now i think it's interesting there's you know the disney princess phenomenon and i wonder if you know you can tell the sex of your child many months before it's born is there something about that that infant coming home to a nursery that's been decked out like in all pink or all blue or you know football theme or whatever it is and i wonder if that just sort of subconsciously sets parents up to enforce gender stereotypes more so than in the past. I'm still working this out, but I I think there might be something there. Do you think we in the world of journalism or nonfiction are losing the ability to rebut bad arguments? Well, we're losing the incentive. Uh Uh-huh. You know. (laughs) Or you could argue with all these outlets, like if an argument's bad, maybe not everyone will agree that it's bad, but man, does it get exposed rather quickly. Yes. But I mean, again, I don't know. It's like, who's in charge? Who are we supposed to to believe? I I mean, what, what frustrates me in the in the journalism space is that like the idea of being controversial and upsetting your readers or challenging them, that used to be the whole job. That's why you got that into was journalism. The point it was of definitely it. the most fun. You know? And yeah. I mean, I was writing controversial pieces when I was in my 20s. That's how I got as far as I did. I mean, you wrote something, you got a lot of angry letters to the editor. Then they hired you to do another piece. Like, that was the arrangement. And I find it remarkable now that it's almost like, you know, people say, well, I would write about this, but I don't want to alienate my my readers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my the people who read me, they really count on me to, to uh, you know, stay on certain line of thinking. And I, they feel like, why, why are you in the business? And I also sense, I mean, it, it is what I'm going to say is true in general of the way it used to be, but it's still a bit true today. But I do sense that it used to be the case that if you as a journalist could look into an issue or a politician or an argument and say, here are some things factually off with the assertions, like 
that was what you needed to do. That wasn't necessarily all you needed to do. You needed to provide all the context. But if someone was arguing for a case using a bad set of, for instance, statistics, the fact that the overall point was a good one was much less important than the gender wage gap can be almost entirely explained by women leaving the workforce, for instance. Right. And I mean, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that there's massive media malpractice going on. There are so many people writing so many different things, so many different outlets, there's a lot of spectacular and important work going on. So let's just let's just be clear. Right. But I do think that there, you know, the Trumpism has made it so that, you know, a lot of people think we're in such a state of emergency that we cannot afford to have nuanced conversations about yeah. things because we just, you know, anything that's going to throw us off track um, and and lose people uh, and not, you know, stay on the mission of, of resistance, hashtag resistance, we just can't afford right now. Right. And, and uh, you know, I think that we have used Trump as as an excuse for intellectual laziness. All right. My last question is, do you have any advice for a good way of thinking about all of this, which is you note what's going on, but your reaction is, oh, this is nonsensical as opposed to this is catastrophic. To putting it, this is what I try to do, and I don't know if it's just my natural orientation or if there is a way or advice where you could look at all these these fights as food fights in a cafeteria where you might get jello on yourself as opposed to war and peace. I would say allow yourself to sit in your confusion. <laughs> we need to be more more comfortable with conflict. You know, I always say to my students, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying or you're not very smart. Do they like you? They always come back. <laughs> they do. The problem with everything is Megan Dom's treatise on America today. It is her new book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the Culture Wars. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. And now, the spiel. It is an antantwig, which is our name for a three-week period. It's formed from the Old English word for 21 and antantwig. And I do have to say it has been more than three weeks. In fact, it's been a day short of three months. So it is our, our quadrinary. It has been four three-week periods, making this a dodeca antantwig. I'll cop to it. First writing to us was Jed Hakami, who's a uh, Doctor of Film and Media Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And he wrote because as I was talking to Maria Konnikova, she was talking about uh, Walter Benjamin's work and misstated the year. Walter Benjamin died in 1940. And Dr. Hockamy was pointing out that, quote, Benjamin was not lamenting art changing because of the movies. He thought movies have revolutionary possibilities. Distracting was not a bad thing for him because he theorized what is effectively a subliminal reception in a state of distraction. Furthermore, Hakami goes on, Benjamin thought the cowardly lion was, quote, a transcendent figure. And Benjamin lived out his later days as what we would now call a furry. Right, I made the last part of that letter up, but thank you, Dr. Hakami. Ian Hoffman writes to me, hey, points for knowing that Louisiana does not have counties. And then parenthetically adds, though their parishes, not cantons. Yes, I said there were cantons. Well, thank you, Ian. Thank you for the very gentle correction. But the question is, do I deserve these points? I do not. I got it wrong. 
I just did not give the wrong answer that you would usually expect. It's like when you watch Jeopardy and you're thinking to yourself the answer, oh, it's the Treaty of Westphalia. And a player chimes in and he says, what is the Treaty of Westphalia? And for a second, you're like, yeah, I knew it. And then Alex says, nope, it was the Treaty of Augsburg. It's like that. Just because you're wrong, but wrong for a different reason doesn't mean you're not wrong. In my conversation with the linguist Gretchen McCulloch, I laid out to Gretchen that I don't like when servers say no problem when I ask for rolls or water or extra wasabi sauce. No problem. Because I I get out of my head a little bit, you know? Your problem is not really my problem. You're here. Sorry, you called a server. You're here to serve. I'm not being a dick about this that I don't know. And I know you don't mean it. Anything other than it's just a casual response with sure, right away. Absolutely. I just don't love it. And Thomas Wang wrote in saying he thinks the same thing. And then he heard me say it to Gretchen and was like, this Pesca guy, he really gets it. Pesca. Boom. Shot down by Gretchen with a quick dismissal as a phatic expression. You've been overthinking. And she is right. It is why nobody cares except for some dopes that take words too literally all the time. Now I am at peace and this will not bother me anymore. Thanks. And you know what this letter from Thomas Wang shows? It shows that podcasts serve to connect even when they don't serve to correct. Whit Whitaker writes in, about my musings about the expression, a stitch in time. And he forwards me this poem by Billy Collins on rhyme. It's possible that a stitch in time might save as many as 12 or as few as three. And I have no trouble remembering that September has 30 days. So do June, November, and April. The poem goes on, but it inspired me because I have to say that our system of assigning the numbers to months in a year, it is insane. It is insane. If I gave 100 randomly selected, non-insane people these parameters, all right, we got a year, it takes 365 and a quarter days to go around the sun, I want you to break this up into something manageable, I'm thinking, I don't know, 8 to 15 chunks, however you want to do it, no one, no matter how crazy they were, would come up with, all right, here's our system, we got 8 months with 31 days, we got 3 months with 30 days, And then we'll have another month with 28 days, except sometimes 29 days. I mean, we live with it. We don't question it. It's crazy. Isn't it better to say we'll do five 31-day months and seven 30-day months? 155 plus 210 is 365. Maybe we'll add a day to one of those 30-day months. That would make sense. Or you could even say, and this is a little weirder, but not as bad as our actual system. We'll go at six 30-day months. And six 31-day months. Now that adds up to 366. So then instead of a leap year, we'll say three out of every four years, we'll have an unleap year. We'll take one of the days out of the 31-month days. That's a little like my first system. Anyway, it's not the current system. What this sparks in me is the idea that whenever anyone insults the electoral college or the tax code or the rules as to what constitutes a catch in the NFL, remember, we are working off a much, much simpler problem to solve, and we've totally botched it with a much more fundamental thing, the months. We can't really hold the NFL commissioners or our founding fathers to that highest standard when all of us screwed up the months. We suck at figuring out simple things. Look at the months. Okay, so that was an email about a stitch in time, if you remember. We go now from stitches to snitches. I did a whole thing about the HR puffin stuff theme, specifically the laziness of this part. Nothing 
the boat belonged to a kooky old witch who had in mind the flute to snitch. And as I said, then, come on, that's not even what snitch means. Snitch means to tattle. You're just looking for a rhyme for witch. But no, no, I, it turns out, am totally wrong. R. Scott Brown writes in at Pescami. I'm not trying to be that guy, but damn, Pesca, snitch means to steal. The word was used not as a rhyming plug, but to accurately describe the witch's intent. Oh, H.R. Puffin stuff was trash, is trash, and will forever be trash. R. Scott Brown's right about all of it. I looked it up. Snitch does mean to steal. I didn't know that. It's not even that obscure a definition. I bet a bunch of you listening knew that and didn't correct me. So that's why I'd like to take a moment not to address the content of that letter, but that one phrase, at Pescami. I'm not trying to be that guy. Now, there's this phenomenon called the reply guy, and it means a guy who replies. And the idea is that maybe someone with expertise, usually a woman, will offer an opinion and will get a reply, a corrective, actually, and the reply guy will be wrong. Now, he'll be wrong for his reply, but I also sense that he'll be wrong for being a guy. And I have no doubt that the gender breakdown of people who correct other people on social media tends mostly toward the guy just well for a lot of reasons but you know how we're raised on our culture is certainly one of those things but if you're on social media giving opinions you should know you will get some corrections and a certain percentage of those corrections will be wrong and perhaps a large or disproportionate amount of those corrections will be from guys but i think we need to in all this vigilance against the reply guy we need to keep our eye on the ball that If the correction is correct, then you, the original person like me with the snitch thing, made the mistake and you can't blame the reply guy. There's a big difference between the right reply guy and the wrong reply guy. And I think we're conflating all reply guys into this shameful category of reply guy. And I would like to rehabilitate the correct reply guy. I'm going to do that now in the person of R. Scott Brown, who perhaps worried that he would be deemed a reply guy. And I am going to elevate you from the self-feared reply guy status and confer upon you the most exalted status that I can confer that's within my power. You are Scott Brown. You are the lobster of the Antan twig, which is the best replier in all the land. Now go and reply factually and helpfully to all of those who may err, especially in describing the lazily dashed off lyrics of a better forgotten child TV show. Reply away, sir. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader. Look out for his new book, My Problem with Everything That Happens After the First Six Episodes of Any Ryan Murphy Series. Christina DeJosa, gist producer, has a new book out, My Problem with Everyone Who Says Could Care Less When They Mean Couldn't Care Less. The gist. Salt, maybe. Poppy, sure. Garlic, yeah. Sesame, absolutely. But you will find my treatise on the combination of these ingredients in my new book, My Problem with Everything Bagels. Yumpuru Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.